Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Hey, this is Dan Parks, author of Mercy Not Sacrifice. Let me say thank you for listening to my audiobook version of the project. I really appreciate it. It was fun to do and it's it's also fun to record. If you're enjoying this, please do me a favor and leave a review and rate the podcast as that really helps me on iTunes. Helps it get noticed and helps other people enjoy the project as well. Thanks. Stay tuned for another chapter. Chapter 14, Passenger Aboard At a truck stop in Dodge City, I came out of the bathroom as Jesus stood at the counter speaking to the clerk while three young men stood before him. One was skinny with a belt buckle as big as the circumference of his waist, and he wore a white cowboy hat with a dark oil spot on the front tip of the brim. The other had a plump, red, freckled face the shape of a jelly donut, which a coddling mother in a diet consisting entirely of homemade fried chicken was no doubt the cause. The leader of the trio was a small young man that had to get his Wrangler jeans special ordered in order to find the correct inseam length. It was said on his first day of school that he blacked the eye of the first inquisitive young mind who asked him why he was so short. He was small, and he was mad about it. What are you doing in Dodge City? asked the madman. Jesus continued speaking to the clerk. What are you doing here? he repeated. Get him, Willie, chanted his two cheerleaders. Willie strutted up, and open palm pushed Jesus in the shoulder and bounced back like a boxer on his toes as Jesus slowly turned around. Oh, I'm sorry, Jesus said. Were you waiting in line? What are you doing in my town? Willie asked. Jesus had seen the look before. Just passing through, he responded. Willie began pointing his finger. You dirty Mexicans come up here and work for nothing and take away an honest white man's livelihood. Jesus practiced what he preached and the two others realizing that they had probably been hurt by a job loss or someone in their family had. He saw the years of abuse that Willie had received from his father about being so small and the perversion that it caused making him meaner than his father in response. You get out of here as quick as you came, Willie said. Willie looked back at the two dimwits and puffed his chest. Back on the road with the truck moving again, Jesus broke the silence. The man's name is Alejandro. He saw the question in my eyes and answered it before I had a chance to ask it. The man that killed my father. Why did he do it, I asked. My father Gideon was a poor man, Jesus said. He had been raised that way and didn't know different. He watched the town that he lived in his whole life become a pathway for drugs to America, and he saw things and kept a record of it. He had it all written down in a book. In case anything happened, he'd have the proof. The weight of memory hung heavy on his face. The cartels started to give their informants money to keep the route open, and as Alejandro was a sheriff, they paid him off to look the other way. He had been my father's friend since childhood, but when the property searches started, it didn't matter. They found my father's notebook, and he got turned in. Alejandro had been performing the executions for a few years by that time, but the morning of my father's, he didn't show up and instead ran off. The whole town was burnt down in response, and everything, including my father, was reduced to ashes. That coward, I said. I came to America to avenge my father's death and kill Alejandro, Jesus said. I heard he's staying in Carson City. Why did I pick you up in Kansas then? I asked. When I got halfway there, I had a moment, he said. My father spoke to me in a dream. 
I saw him as clearly as I see you right now. He said, Jesus, don't carry on your life in anger for my sake. I forgive you. Please give mercy to him. Let Alejandro go. What did you do? I got mad, he said. But he told you not to, I responded. Have you always listened to your father? He asked. Once I got past the first few years after my dad divorced my mom and got over trying to keep them together, all that remained was my anger. I hadn't listened to any advice either one of them had given me since. Honor thy father and mother, Jesus said, gazing out the window as the sun began to set. My father forgave me in that dream for what I did the very last time I saw him. What did you do? I asked. I brought shame to him, Jesus said. He had hosted a dinner for Christmas. Family and friends and neighbors were all there. I had just come home from working a construction job in America. Only being here for a little over a year, I had sent back thousands of dollars home, and I was very proud of that, and I expected to come home and be treated like a king. But I wasn't. I was still Jesus the son, the brother, and the neighbor. I was treated like everyone else, but it wasn't enough for me. He exhaled a sigh heavy with sacrifice. His table of Mexican staples of tortillas, rice, corn, and beans wasn't enough for a big-feeling American construction worker. I began to drink too much that night and look upon him with a pity that turned to a rage. As the dinner wrapped up and my father began to serve the party Mexican coffee, I said, You think with all the money that I've been sending you that you could have served something decent, like ham or turkey or potatoes? You see, being in America, I started to think like an American. And I thought about myself more than my family. I never thought about anyone in my family but myself, I thought. All my father ever had was his family, Jesus said. He never had any money that lasted after the bills and the groceries were paid for. The only thing that remained constant in his life was family. His head rested on his hand. How is your family, Johnny? He asked. It was a difficult question to answer, and I've always tried not to. I stopped trying with my family a long time ago. My rationale was if I stopped trying to love, then I wouldn't be hurt. What I failed to realize was that without love, a heart would begin to slowly wither away. A selfish heart that forgets to love can no longer grow and therefore slowly begins to die. My family, I said, is a mess. Johnny, Jesus said, what is the one thing that you've done in your life that you would most like to take back? They divorced in October when I was 14 years old. It had been the first Christmas afterwards. I had been serving as an altar boy alongside Father Jones at St. Michael's. Dinner had been planned at my mom's that night, and at that point in her life she was still trying. She had had a real tree with pine needles that fell on the carpet to prove that it was alive at one point like she had been. I had watched the altar that night. She had sat on my left, but it was on the congregation's right. She had been sober for a month, and it was the first time that she had been alone, and she couldn't hide the rejection from her face. Father Jones and I were a team. He was like a truck, and I was a trailer as I followed him in tow. The Christmas Mass was in perfect order. At the time of the Gospel acclamation, I noticed that my dad sat in the back of the church, but the whole Carmen family sat up front. They had done so since Grandpa John and Grandma Marta's wedding. Archie next to Regina, Sam and Carmela, Kylie and Billy, and Lenny and Ian. The whole family was together. All but my side of it. Many Christmases after that, 
Lori and I had been living in the trailer in Gardenstown, and a long, simmering decision came to an end. She had decorated the same plastic tree that I had bought from the dollar store years earlier. Lori had strung lights up on the railing of the stairs leading to the front door. I had gotten off early that Christmas Eve, but didn't get home till a quarter past five, after being five beers into a six-pack. Merry Christmas, Johnny, Lori said. I looked past her and walked through to the kitchen. I opened the fridge and grabbed one from the inside. Dinner? I stated. Lori closed the door and galloped to the table where I sat. We're going to Grandpa John's and Grandma Marta's, she responded. But let's open presents first. The thing that I remember the most about that moment was her anticipating smile. She skipped over the two steps that led back down to the lowered living room floor and picked up the single present that sat underneath the tree. Come down here, she said. I got up from the table and stepped to the living room where Lori rested on her knees by the tree. We had talked about it that past Labor Day. Walking alongside the river down at Flood Island, she wore a white sundress with pink roses on it. She still looked young at the time, but her body had begun to change. Her youthful hips had turned mature. Lori's eyes had begun to glisten the way they do when a woman begins to think about settling down and having children. Lori looked up at me by the tree that Christmas Eve. Her eyes were heavy with the long years of our relationship. The ups and downs and the hopes and dreams of two kids were getting older. She still held on to hope, but I had given up on myself a long time before that night. Open it, she said as she handed me her present. So I held her gift. I remembered that walk. It had been at a time before she had known and grown close to Makina. You ever think about marriage? Lori asked. A breeze blew in from the east, across the Missouri River, and wisp of her hair blew in the front of her vulnerable eyes. I took her present in my hands and opened it. It was a notebook with a pen taped to the top. I thought you could start writing again, she said. I saw in her the tenderness of a woman who wanted to believe in her man. Maybe, I said. She stood up and placed her hands on my shoulders. Remember, Lori said, what that teacher said? You have a way with prose. Prose. My Johnny's a writer. He's just yet to begin. Lori, I said. That was a long time ago. She stepped back from me and placed her hands in her back pockets of her jeans in waiting. I knew what she wanted, but I didn't get it for her. Call it cowardice or selfishness or even fear, but I see it now for the failure that it was. Money's tight this year, I said. I've been busy and didn't get a chance to get you something. Lori turned and looked back at the tree. She scanned the old wood paneling of her trailer home. Her face told me that she wasn't loved in the way that she needed. When she looked back at me, I felt her stare on the black part of my soul. I didn't need anything, Johnny, she responded. Even though we ain't got money, I still love you. She walked to me and gave me a humble kiss on the cheek. I took my eyes from the road and off the windshield, and I saw that Hazers was staring directly at me, waiting for an answer. I should have asked Lori to marry me when I had the chance, I said, when she still believed in me. We don't always get second chances, Jesus said. That's why I'm going to find Alejandro. Mercy is hard, I said. But it's a gift, he said. One might think that the receiver is the only one getting but it's the giver that truly receives. I had forgiven Alejandro in my heart, Jesus said, but I need to tell him why I still had the time. Then there was that other secret of mine, 
Father Jones was loved by the town. He was outgoing and personable and charming. A young priest was exciting for Gardenstown. The first time that I met him, I wanted to be like him. He made me want to be a priest. I was a willing worker at the church as an altar boy. I did what was asked and tried to do more. Father Jones saw my drive and he encouraged me to spend more time with him at the church, and we began to form a bond. I was his apprentice. I was learning, and he was earning my trust and my allegiance. But then it began to change. Looking back in the photo albums, People would say that it is when my face changed. The smile stopped looking natural and began to look forced. The free spirit left and my life became about hiding. Father Jones had began getting closer to me. It all started on a Saturday afternoon, a few hours before the mass scheduled that evening. Have you hit puberty? He asked me while I was slipping through a missalette. My cheeks flushed with color and I wondered what he meant. What do you mean? I responded. Is there hair around your penis? He asked. My physical features had started to change. I had been growing taller and my face was leaner and longer, and the skin above my penis had began to itch as new hairs had begun growing in. Confusion was settling in my heart. I liked the attention, but I knew it was wrong. Yes, I responded, looking over at the closed door. Well, said Father Jones as he walked over to me, can I see? It was as if I didn't have a choice, and my hands moved independently of my will. When I began to undo my belt, and unzip my pants. We heard the knock on the door. Father Jones, are you in there? He had fire in his eyes as he said, It's the nun. Quick, zip up your pants. Thanks for listening to another chapter of Mercy Not Sacrifice by me, Dan Parks. If you're listening to this on iTunes, I wanted to ask if you could rate or review the podcast as it really helps me get the project out there and have other people listen to it as well. I hope you're enjoying the project as I'm having a lot of fun making it. I'll see you next chapter.